Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to the Motorsport Magazine podcast. I'm Jack Phillips, digital editor of Motorsport, and I'm joined today by Simon Aaron, features editor. Good morning. And joining us today is a man who has played a part in some of motor racing's biggest rivalries, um, Porsche, McLaren, Senna Prost, yet never made an enemy, which is quite remarkable. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. It's, it's not easy, but I mean, I... In my job at McLaren, for example, I used to look after the drivers and the team and so on. So I, d I wasn't involved in the contracts and on the big things. Ron did all that. So <laughs> it's okay. I was friend with them rather yeah. than they. Uh, it, was a, it was a fantastic couple of years, especially the first one. I think it was super. Um, but then inevitably, you have been dealing with the best two biggest stars that we ever had in the sport so we know it was going to last it wasn't going to last too long but what it lasted we thoroughly enjoyed so that that is the voice of joe ramirez who's delighted you can join us this today I know thank you you've been over the last week or so been to the goodwood revival i believe i've been to the goodwood revival it's a, an event that i i i like not to miss it and i think this is 20 year and i have done um, at least 15 of them so it's a lovely, lovely event. I think people like myself that have been in the sport for so long have a lot to thank Lord March, well, Duke of Richmond now, for what he's done there because it's really superb. It's really like a time machine and you go back and the cars there and the people and, you know, it's a p in three days you meet half of your friends that you had uh, work and most of your life. So it's a great event. A lot of people who spend many many years working in formula one tend to become slightly isolated from the rest of the sport but it's clear you know you've your your passion is is, is clearly absolutely intact you you're you are a proper enthusiast who absolutely loves the whole industry aren't you yes i guess it's it's true um uh, ron dennis used to always criticized me saying I was a puritan of the sport I didn't really uh, and said the sport is not getting is not so puritan you must do little things that they maybe don't confront us but I didn't I, I uh, if I was if I am going to lose I sort of prefer to lose at the track because we're not good enough than rather making a little thing that it wasn't quite allowed if you know what I mean and and a lot of the Formula One teams they always play to the very very uh, line you know and some overtaking that line I have to say McLaren we never did overtake it, that line but we were always up to there I mean that was the good designers that's what they do the, the McLaren drivers you could say sometimes went over the line a little bit <laughs> yes indeed but 
But uh, like I said before, it was good to work with the best two in the world, and it was hard to deal with them. But uh, there was two guys that they were the best. You know, it's better than having two guys that you can they they don't go. You know, so obviously he have his ups and downs and of the sport. And I mean, there are many many things we'd like to talk to you about: McLaren, Tyrrell, Eagle, Ford GT40, so much stuff. But it's appropriate today, I think, if, if you don't mind, Jack, if we, if we go back uh, to a, the early part of your Formula One career, um, two hours before you joined us this morning, Ferrari announced that Charles Leclerc was going to be driving for them in 2019. And I think Charles is the youngest driver to sign for Ferrari since your good friend Ricardo Rodriguez back in the early 61. 62. 62, yes. sorry. And... Um, no, sorry, you, you were yeah, right, 61, 61 yeah. yes. And uh, I just, what can you tell us about those very early days? I mean, I don't know how much English you spoke when you came over to Europe or whether you, I presume you spoke some Italian, but uh, what, 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 what was it like in those early days? You know, there was no internet, plane travel took forever. I mean, what sort of a sense of adventure was it when the two of you came over? Well, I think he was more uh, fascinated, the fact that you, you didn't have all those tools that we thoroughly enjoy these days but it was always um, yes it, it was so difficult life um, or not, not, nobody did it difficult but different than what it is now with, um, with all these modern tools but uh, I think the sport I, I, I hate to say it, but it was better I think it was more enjoyable uh, they have taken all the romanticism of the sport that we we used to have, um, and uh, as far as uh, Ferrari signing Leclerc, I mean, it's um, it just showed that the management is changing very much. I think if Sergio Marchione was still here, he would, and it's probably because he would have would like to have Leclerc, and maybe they are respecting. His what wishes. the decision yeah. that uh, he was, but uh, I, to be honest, I didn't. I just learned it. From, I know that uh, Lapo Herman has uh, put it something in the internet before, and then they have to take it off very quick. Um, but yes, I think it was a little, a little bit on the cards, and it, it does surprise me because, uh, and I feel sad for Kimi because he's really doing a super job now, which I'm sure. Is, um, Charles is going to be difficult to to put up with it next year, uh, and I think it probably is going to destabilize a little bit his relation with Sebastian. And Sebastian, brilliant as it is, he kind of make almost a mistake at every race. And whether if Charles uh, is going to make that even worse, if he's going to push him more than Kimi did, I'm not sure. Which I don't think he will next year, but uh, after a few races next year, he's probably start pushing him hard. So I, I, uh, we will have to see. But um, in a way, it's nice to see young people. And I like Charles very much. And he's not just as a driver. He's a really nice person as well. And we do need new blood in the in the sport. How was um, Ricardo in 1961? How was he received by sort of... Ferrari and Enzo and yeah, Ricardo was um, it was a l very easy to work with to deal with him. He was a full of fun guy all the time, and um, 
Yes, for him it was, he couldn't believe when he had the call. And, uh, and uh, when he did Monza the first year and he was only a fraction of a second in second place on the front row besi beside uh, Von Tripps. And the other driver used to come and ask him, uh, what, what gear are you taking in the parabolic? And I, why they ask me? See, I've never done this before. <laughs> I never, you know, <laughs> it was, um, but he was one of those guys that he was, he had a talent, he born with it. Uh, it was very easy for him to go fast on the racing cars. He didn't have to work at it. He just come natural. And, you know, those kind of drivers, we see them maybe 10 years, you know, the pros, Senna, Schumacher, Alonso. And, and uh, so to be there at that epoch when he was so young and he was kind of from Mexico, to me, he was fantastic. So sad that he, he, he lasted very little. You know, so, what What was... As a, as you you were working for Ferrari as an apprentice mechanic at the time, were you were you travelling to the races? Yes, I was. Well, the deal is that when I got there, uh, I was lucky. I got there when Ricardo was driving the first race for them in the Targa Florio, not only Formula One, but in the Targa Florio. And I just said, well, look, I'm go with. I meet you there. I do my way, whatever, however I can, and I meet you there, and you introduce me with the people, and then you know it's after me if I get something or not. And fortunately for me, Mario Forgieri, which was his first year at Ferrari, and uh, Eugenio Dragoni, which was the director, also was his first year. Uh, they liked my enthusiasm, you know, but they said, look, we cannot employ you. you you're not Italian. You don't speak Italian yet. And you have no knowledge of the sport, although you very have a lot of passion. So if you come to the races, you do your own way at the races. We pay your hotel, we pay you your food, and we start like that. So and this is how I did the first year, but I loved it uh, because I used to travel to the races with Giancarlo Baghetti, sometimes with Ricardo, sometimes with uh, Lorenzo, but mainly with Giancarlo because it's, in those days they used to drive to all the races. You know, he had a, a Ferrari, and we used to drive to all the races. And I got there, and I, you know, the boys, the the mechanics, they gave me all the shitty jobs nobody wanted to do it but you know i was enjoying it i was uh, doing what i liked that I, what i always wanted to do learning the language learning the the mestiere the official the, the the work and um, little by little the mechanics used to trust me more and they gave me more important jobs so it was a great time unfortunately that was the 1962 where there was a lot of problems industrial problems in italy and there was a lot of strikes and we missed races and yeah however you know you can have it all it, it was brilliant introduction to the sport i got a tremendous relation with mario Foggieri, which up to these days and weekends i used to go to his house and he he was a workaholic he worked all the time but he showed me how he did things and why he did them it was it was brilliant but your first paid job was that with Fangio got your first job at Maserati, is that correct? With Fangio, he introduced me to Engineer Alfieri at Maserati and kind of the same thing. He said, look, we give you a job, we give you a card, that, uh, a letter that you have a job with us, but you got to go with that letter to the home office in Rome and, you know, find your working permit and you, 
So I went up to Rome. I can't remember how many weeks I spent there, got the permit and came back and I had my first paid job. At uh, Maserati also was brilliant because my immediate boss was Gian, Gian Paolo Dallara. And I also had a very good relation with him. And um, so I was a couple of months in the engine uh, department, a couple of months in the gearbox, in the chassis department. So I learned a lot. And uh, and then uh, Engineer Dallara got the call from uh, Ferruccio Lamborghini to do the first Lamborghini. And he said, Joe, you have to come with us. Maserati didn't race in Formula One, but he, he was racing in, uh, but not anymore in Formula One. I think they stopped in 57, 58. So we, we were talking that was 62. However, there is still racing prototypes, Le Mans, Sebring, uh, that type of races. Mm -hmm. And when uh, he, Dallara got the call, he said, Joe, you got to come with us. I said, no, but I like racing. I like to go racing. Oh, but we're going to go racing. Give us a year to do the first prototype and we will do in races. Anyway, convinced me and, and I thought, well, it will be a good opportunity to make the first car from uh, day one, you know, and uh, Gianpaolo as well was a, was a great guy. And, and I was lucky. I learned about so much. And then I even have the opportunity with together with Bob Wallace, we used to do a lot of mileage when the car was finished to find out everything that was going to broken. And so it was a tremendous. But after a year, I uh, decided that I really wanted to go racing and I came to, to England then. Well, at, on that point, I've had quite a few questions before we go back to Ricardo uh, Rodriguez. Um, one from Juan Carlos who asked, as a Mexican, what was your biggest challenge trying to adapt to the motorsport industry? And then um, Howard B asked also, on, when you arrived in the UK, um, how did you cope with the language and the accents, the food and the winter testing at Snetterton? <laughs> 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 I used to, when I first come, to, you know, the Spanish and the Italian is not that much difference. It is a lot of difference, but probably if you're talking s slowly, you can... And I thought I would pick it up very quickly, and I find that it was not not easy. I bought myself a little transistor radio, and I had a little thing, and I stick it in my thing, and I was always hearing the news, the comedies, no music, but just to to learn, and that was a great help. And the same thing when I came to to England, that that was even worse because the English, yes, you 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 learn is the basic language. Every country, your second language is English. So I did kind of got myself by to order a meal to get a room in a hotel but when you had to work it's so difficult i remember to to, to telephone if i had a meeting somebody and have to uh, get the, the address in the telephone and say please please slowly slowly teletrate <laughs> Can, you know go letter by letter because uh, it was it was hard but uh but when you have to do it you you do it very quick uh, as well as that age, it was much more easy to to learn language. Um, yes, it's, it's been another uh, thing that another what do you call it, hurdle that you have to cross. But what, what have you been doing in Mexico City immediately before you came over to? to well, I was uh, I was studying for a mechanical engineer, but that was the only um, kind of. Um, how could I say, career that you can see a little bit of cars, you know. And But I didn't see any cars, really. It was all mechanical things. And uh, 
And I said, no, this is not not for me. I got to go. So I only did the two, three years of the. I was still missing three years to finish the career. And uh, I remember my father was very upset because I left. He always said, oh, finish the career. And you know, but this is three years. And, you know, I can learn what I want to do in, in Europe on three years. And, and uh, I, I decided that I, I had to go. I, I used to. I used to do all type of all kind of work to learn a little sorry to earn a little bit of money and i um i managed to to get a free ticket to new york um i had five hundred dollars i had a ticket to new york by plane with a the father of a friend of mine that was in the government, he got me that ticket to get there. And then I bought a, a, a ticket on the Queen Elizabeth, the original <laughs> Queen Elizabeth, <laughs> to come to England. Uh, to, that was 200 euros. And that was one of the best weeks of my life. It was so fun. It was just like uh, the Titanic film. It was brilliant. I was uh, sharing a, 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 a room with an Australian young guy that I... Of course, I never met him, but we really got on really well, and we we used to we had so much fun. It was a fantastic experience. And then I had three hundred dollars left, and with that, I went from Southampton to the Targa Florio in Sicily in riding. It took me about a week, but I got there, and that's where I met uh, Rodriguez and, and uh, Dragoni and Forgieri. I mean, having given up your studies in Mexico City, I think. The fact that you then had an education from Mauro Forgieri and Gian Paolo de Lara was 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 definitely was definitely the way to, was the, the right way to go, wasn't it? For me, incredible. It's, it's really 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 good. But uh, as I always say, that was lucky at that time. The the passion opened the doors. Today, no way. Mm. So when you land, when you arrived at the Targa Florio, was that when you had the lap with Ricardo? I had a lap with uh, Ricardo. There was uh, um, the. They used to bring there a few Ferraris GTO for the drivers to learn the circuit. Mm. And it was great. I'd, uh, I did three laps with Ricardo, two or three laps, I can't remember. And then uh, in the last laps, he went by the... There were no timing laps. There were just the drivers to get in. We were timing it, but not. there wasn't like the Ferrari. Wasn't, no. So we passed the, the start and finish line. He stopped. He let me drive one lap. I came back and then stopped before and he, he took over again. And that was brilliant, brilliant experience. And then was it 10 years later you had a similar experience with, with, with Pedro. Pedro? Yeah, this time I didn't drive, but uh, Pedro drove me around and uh, he, he then asked me, how did I do in compared to, um, to how Ricardo. many with <laughs> Ricardo? Oh, I said, well, I'll give you a six. <laughs> and he said, oh, well, good. I have a um, scope to improve. <laughs> That Jamie Smith, actually, one of our readers, has asked, um, how did Ricardo compare to Pedro? You must get that all the time. But. Um, well, at the time, Ricardo was always quicker, and uh, Pedro, it was always a second between them, and second, Pedro used to try so hard to get to the time of Ricardo. For Ricardo, it was easy, and often uh, had a little chance so go off the road or whatever. Um, it's amazing, but even in the rain, and and El Comendador Enzo always used to say, "Well, if it's if it's raining, he likes Ricardo to start. Pedro or Ricardo, he said, I leave it up to you who finish. But uh, if it's raining, he likes Ricardo to drive. You know, so, 
Uh, and then when Ricardo died and Pedro, without the shadow of his younger brother, beating him always, he's starting to get better and better and came up to be the best, one of the best weather uh, wet drivers that we have ever seen. It was brilliant. Remember that race in Brand Satch with the... The 917. I, I remember the... Yes. Uh, John was saying, has anybody told Pedro that it's raining? <laughs> <laughs> I think I read somewhere that you thought Ricardo was more natural. Oh, completely, yes. It's like I was saying before, it was just one of those talents that they didn't need to to work hard to go quick. It just came natural, like Senna, like Prost, like Schumacher. Um, it's such a shame that he, he lived so so short. Also because uh, he was so much nicer pers person than Pedro. He was much more open. He really, he had, everybody was his friend. He did a lot of uh, friends within the, the racing drivers. Pedro never did any uh, friendship with another driver. He always said, if you know a driver well enough that is your friend, if you are dicing with him will to will, he will know more or less how I will react and I will know more or less how I will react and it's better not uh, knowing that. I think that was his theory and uh, maybe he did, he did work for him. But uh, no, but Ricardo was a much, he was a really character. I think he would have been good for the sport. My, having said that, on those days, I think everybody had were characters. There was uh, better people than we had now. So between obviously the sixties and you then late sixties, you joined John Wire. Um, had you kept in touch with Pedro between between times or not? Yes, because Pedro, where well, we're still working together, because uh, Pedro was driving the BRM in Formula One and driving the the Ford, the GT40 or the 917. Yeah later with, with John Ward and I was working with John Ward but John Ward said uh, uh, one Mexican per car is enough so we, <laughs> did, we were not together I was working with Derek Bell and um, Seifert and Joe Seifert and uh, other uh, mechanics were working with Pedro and Jackie so uh, yes we keep, funnily enough when he actually died um, he just moved into a house in in Bray, and I was living in Maidenhead. And I said to Pedro and Glenda, his girlf his girlfriend, "Oh, you must come to to dinner." He said, "Yeah." And he was coming to dinner that weekend, and then he called me. He said, "Sorry, um, Herbert Mueller have offered my his Ferrari for me to drive it, drive in Norwich." And, ah, don't worry, there'll be another weekend, you know. And then. I didn't, in those days, I didn't have no news, so I didn't see any news. I come to work on uh, Monday morning, and David York said, oh, did you, what a shame about Pedro. What do you mean, Pedro? What what happened? You, didn't you hear? No, no, got killed yesterday. Wow. <coughs> it makes me, it was awful. I read also, between John Wire and um, the two stints of John Wire, he went to Eagle, and... So you were living in Rye, but before that you met Danny, uh, Dan Gurney once at the Nürburgring, um, and he took you round. So you um, had, uh, do you remember much about that, the lap of the Nürburgring in Dan Gurney's Porsche? Yes, but uh, I also did a lap with, with Giancarlo Baghetti <laughs> when we got there, and it was raining when we got there because we, I was travelling to him to the races, and when we got there he said, oh, <coughs> let's do a lap, and so 
we did a lap, and you know, I was scared. And not because he was going to quit, I just didn't feel, I, I was thinking myself, my God, this is a, a Formula One driver, I wasn't all that. Uh. And then I did a lap with, uh, with Dan Gurney, was like night and day different. It was, uh, I was really amazed always. I on I don't know which trip, but in one of the races, we had a crash with the Ferrari. We were overtaking a, a track, and the track in front that we were overtaking decided to go around another slow car in front, and he didn't see us or whatever, so he moved over and, and Giancarlo hit it. And I just, I thought, cross it. I didn't see him in changing lap or, uh, gear, or it was a little bit more space on the where he could make an avoiding action. He didn't. We're just so surprised, and so we damaged the, the car. I, it never impressed me, Giancarlo Baghetti as a driver, like he did Rodriguez or Gurney or anybody else. But he won his first race, you know. Yeah. What was it? I mean, I had the privilege of interviewing Dan Gurney two or three times, and I just found him the most charming, eloquent, eloquent, interesting man. He was superb to talk to. He treated like a best friend, even though I'd never met him um, previously. I mean, what was it, uh, his reputation in the sixties was genius driver, but quite taciturn, quite quiet, um, quite studious. What What were your impressions working with him? Oh, he's always been one of the best drivers at work, best friends, best bosses. It was great. Um, he did fancy himself a bit of an engineer as well, and he was always tinkling with the car. He always, uh, he <laughs> I remember in uh, in Spa, you know, we didn't have the facilities we have now. It was the track park on the road, on the dirt, the road full of stones. The car was like not straight, and he was standing on the top of the the stairs you to enter the transport, and he looked at the car and said, "Joe, I think um, we ought to." more toy in on the left front. And, you know, yeah, give it two turns on it. So of course you had to do it and you know. Then he did a lap and, and he, he he was such a good driver that he tried harder to make it the change better. And uh, and then after perhaps he said, No, it, it was okay, but maybe better put it back how it was. <laughs> <laughs> so but then uh, what is good about it and I love that you know, people are still using the Gurney flap. Yes. He was the guy that he invented, and he still got his name, and people still use it. And it's, that's super that uh, he left something that would last forever. And uh, and also, he was the guy that started spraying the champagne yes, after the race yeah. at Le Mans. So he had a bottle and, you know, all the high rack of... of uh, Porsche uh, Ford was there, <laughs> and he thought it was a good idea to, and he was. And uh, since then, then he um, he took the bottle. He gave it to a very close friend of him that he was a, a journalist, and and he was then got a ill, and he sent it back. He said, Dan, I'm probably going to go soon. I think you better keep the bottle back. So Dan kept it for a while, and I think now he's in the Ford Museum in in. But and th that was a fantastic week for them because he won the Le Mans and the week later he won Belgium. Grand Prix. Belgium. Yeah. yeah. So was was that similar to when you worked with uh, Emerson Fittipaldi? 
he had a similar kind of mentality to Gurney in the a little bit too hands on. Uh, yes, but yeah, similar in in many ways. Uh, also very good driver. Also uh, tingled with the car all the time. He, um, I hate to say that uh, Dan Gurney Arideas were probably a little better than Emerson, and uh, with Emerson we had so much trouble with his uh, engineering skills. Um, but then he was a he was a good driver, and, and uh, unfortunately. When I got to Emerson, he was already been twice, or twice world champion, and uh, he was not the same person as a driver. I don't. I think he was just missing a little bit. So many um, ways I could tell you his story. So the things that we have with him, maybe we don't have the time now. But uh, like in the in the Monaco Grand Prix. We didn't qualify in Belgium. Then we went to Paul Ricard and we spent three days testing all so many different things. Uh, Ricardo, Richard de Villa made a new suspension. We tried so many things. We thought we improved the car. We get back to, we got to Monaco and with Monaco we were, uh, we did got, we, we were qualifying, but just to the very end, on 20 position or a little bit less. And we were running at the end of qualified, you know how we do it, everybody do it the same. And the last, just very few, very few, little fuel, just enough to do the last few laps, but I miscalculated and we didn't do the, and he came in the, um, he came in the pit furious, he put his visor up and he said, you bar me a good lap. Sorry, that's the way it goes. Don't even switch the engine off. We just put a couple of <laughs> gallons or whatever in the can, put and put thing. And he went off the pit lane. And remember how you go out in Monaco? They went sideways one way, sideways the other way. And Wilson all worried. Oh, he says he's gonna kill himself. No way. He says probably do a good lap now. You know. <laughs> And he went that one second quicker than he <laughs> ever did before during the whole weekend. And he put the car from twenty in seventh place. And big smile, and he said, and I was so upset, you know, and all the team was upset. He said, look, Emerson, this is what you're going to do. So all we need to do is to make you hungry. <laughs> um, you know, the next time I make love with Ellen, <laughs> I mean, in, in front of you. <laughs> oh, no. It, yes, he, like I said, I think he just passed his good years. Uh, but that's an, a very interesting uh, five years of my life where I lost all my hair. <laughs> well, with, with the he, he was not. It was not easy working with the Fittipaldis, but it's it's good. It was. They gave me my um, the first opportunity that I came up from a mechanic, chief mechanic, to a team manager. So I was grateful for that, and, and I learned a hell of a lot as well. I doing a car in Brazil, and uh, it was interesting times. And despite what you say that in term in Formula One terms, he seemed to have lost perhaps a little of his motivation unless you made him angry. I mean, subsequently, when he went to America, he, he got it back again, didn't he? Yes. Yes, it was a different type of racing. It was just, uh, you were not racing with the same people. The machinery, the tracks were all different. And I think, uh, yes, he felt, he felt really well there and he was earning good money. And so, yes, there was another... <laughs> Once we um, we were running in the British Grand Prix, and I think uh, 
hand and somebody else lap him in the copper suka and uh, and when they lap him boom he's stuck behind them doing the same lap times and i said but what happened you know <laughs> what where these extra seconds came from oh yeah but i dri- i was driving like this you know an ex- brazilian expression to say i was in the limit and say and, and what do you think they guy the other guys were on a sunday <laughs> drive or what <laughs> Yes, it was. It was a shame, but uh, anyway, <laughs> that must have been basically the opposite to what it was like when you were working with Ken Tyrrell, who was oh the happiest. And that was uh, really one of the best stages of my life. I mean, working for Ken, it was just like really a family business, a family affair, and uh, Ken was the father figure, and and. It was so enjoyable to go to dinner with Ken and Nora and Jackie. We talk about cars, we talk about life, we talk about everything. It was just such a fantastic relation, and especially the relation that uh, Jackie and Francois had. Oh, everything was just superb, and and the team was so small. I mean, the smallest team I ever worked was, of course, Dan Gurney before, but. Um, that was a few years later the team were getting bigger but still we we had a picture it's a picture in my book where i love that picture it was 25 people and that was everybody the people at the factory um the people that travel everyone of course you know we didn't we buy the engine we buy the gearbox uh we buy the brakes we didn't do um we, we did the chassis the suspension the bodywork we did all that of course and buy the components but uh, still um when you have such a, a small group of people there are no politics in the sport in the team everybody pulled the same way it's only one rope it's it's just brilliant was we've had a couple of questions actually about uh Severe. Stephen gate uh, asked how did he stack up against the other greats you worked with uh, and Steve Slasky just asked for some thoughts on Francois Severe. So your opinions and memories of Francois. Oh, uh, he was a. Another words, I see a lot of um, similar to, to Ricardo Rodriguez. You know, young, good looking, uh, loved the sports one hundred percent. I mean, he could have been a film star, but he was, despite that, he, he was a very good driver. And, uh, of course, comparing to all of the, at that time, I mean, it was Reutemann, it was Peterson, um, of course, Stewart. Uh, Stewart was a little bit above them, for sure. But um, I think Francois measured really well with, with the other ones. And he was learning so much of uh, Jackie, and he used to love it. He used never, I, I don't know, it, um, you, you, you seem you, you read my book, but I put an example of how good they got on um, in, the, in the Dutch Grand Prix. They were first and second, but there was like a train all the race. And at one time, Jackie got into Tarzan corner and missed the gear. And so ja- uh, Francois kind of opening, and they were side by sides, and then Francois put himself back and when they get at the end of the race, Jackie was first, Francois was second, and I was getting the the belts out of uh, Francois and Jackie. I mean, he was out of the car and came in and said, "Francois, you're an idiot. It was your race. Why didn't you pass me?" And Francois said, 
no, no, I want to pass you. Not when you make a mistake, but when I'm better than you. <laughs> you know? and, and we both say, bloody hell. You know? Yeah, that, that's what, that was Francois. It was really the, the relation that had. It was brilliant. And one thing that Ken was very sorry about it is that he never told uh, Jackie, uh, sorry, Francois, that Jackie was retiring. Francois saw the, the next year it was going to be the same. Um, the only one that knew was Jody Schechter. And of course, Ken, we didn't. And uh, I remember I was doing his belts of Jackie uh, in that race. And he said, because I have a, a collection of steering wheels, which I'm very proud of it, I have probably the best collection of steering wheels. I'm always getting the wheels from other teams. You couldn't do it these days. but. Uh, and Jackie knew that I have the collection of wheels, that I collected wheels. And, and he said to me, is this uh, the steering wheel I've been using all the year? And I say, yes, it is. If you don't mind, you think I could have it after the race? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can arrange that. <laughs> so that was the first indication. And I said, well, I wonder why he wants his, his wheel. Of the, but maybe... Yeah, that was a, a very sad weekend when Francois and he was really fighting. He wasn't, he wasn't qualified, but I, this is how things were going to develop on the Saturday, I guess. And it was a change in lap times with Reutemann and Peterson, and unfortunately, they didn't come back. One did that weekend make you question your involvement in motorsport? Um, having lost Ricardo and mm. a lot of your friends, and then was did you ever question it? Um, it just <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Um, one person that read my book, he said to me, "Because I couldn't believe how many people got killed." Said, funny, funny you should say that. I never really thought about it because you're writing a book, and this is why it happened. But I, I lost so many friends, and and. Of course, the harder thing is when you lose a friend that he was actually driving your car. I mean, uh, I lost uh, Robert McLean, a Canadian driver, driving the GT40s in Sebring. And we, he came into the pit. We just refueled the car and put new pads and so on. He took off. Two laps later, crashed. The car was full of fuel. Got fired. And when we collected, it was only his burned shoes left from it was awful that is probably the worst thing you know there was lucky Kastner that he was a good friend he died in in, um, in Le Mans other uh, so many other people I mean well Pedro Rodriguez and Elio de Angeles later on and so on but it really affects you when he's, he was driving your own car and Francois was driving my car that I worked because of course it's a oh, did I do this wrong did I, did I was the car all right Since I remember at the time it was um, you probably remember Peter Lyons he yes, was a very yes, good yeah, uh, very good writer um, one of the guys the good guys that come to race they write about it and they know what they're talking about it and he came to us after the accident if that helped you to put your mind at rest he nothing broke in the car he just was too quick he lost it in the entrance he hit the guy right on one side and then he went there across and he hit the other and it did nothing broke i can 100 percent because ken said to us they, they took the car to a garage in watkins Glen after the race and he sent those 
Roger Hill and Roy and myself to go and see if we find anything that oh, the guy was a mess and 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 it was actually bits of him there and I woof I remember got ill. Um, so it was good of Peter uh, Lyons to come and tell us that. But nevertheless, it's, it's your car, and you feel a little bit, oh my God, what am I doing this? Is it worth doing it? Is it? But I guess the love for the sport is, is greater, and, and you, you, you overtake those situations. You know. Before we move on to uh, McLaren, which I think half an hour should give us enough time to cover off your time at McLaren. Um, one question from uh, Ricardo Toccato. Uh, just wants a memory about Depaye. So just uh, a memory of Depaye. He was his favourite driver, apparently. Um, yeah, that's another guy. That, um, I did, Depaye was a guy that absolutely... I never met anybody so fearless. Absolutely had no fear of anything. He, he, he was only happy when he was doing things that he think that maybe killed his life doing it like the paragraphs. I mean, he, his feet were so broken so, in so many parts. They don't know how the guy can still walk. Um, but he was a he was a lovely guy. He was just, um, I remember the first time he, we, we gave him a, a chance, or Ken gave him a chance to, to drive for um, Tyrol. He was at uh, Clermont Ferrand. It was a difficult place to get in, and he, he got in late. We were about to go, and he, where is... He got late, so he got his first bolo came from Ken. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, he was just uh, such a fearless guy. He just mind you, when you think about him, most of the uh, Josephus, that was another one that he couldn't. Um, he was just never have experienced what it is to be afraid of, have fear of something. Um, the party was a very quiet guy, I think. It, it, um, it didn't mix as much of the guys of his times, like Lafitte or Jarrier. They were all people that were more um, uh, loud Frenchmen. But uh, yeah, Patrick was uh, yeah was quieter and, and as I said. Uh, fearless guy he was good he was quick and and it was nice and easy to work with him um i can't remember much more when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue nile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Okay, so if we move on to McLaren, we had quite a few questions from readers come in about your time at McLaren. Um, so we start with Giovanni, who asked, uh, how was it to work with Nicky Lauda during 1984 when he won his third title? Did you, know, did you already know him from previous years? You know, out of all of the drivers that have been involved, I all with just about all of them have a very good relationship. But with Nicky, it was a very enigmatic kind of personality. It was more difficult to get close to him. All of his closest friends, they were all Austrians, and um, he used to come often with the, his own friends at the circuit. And um, yes, it was not easy to to get close to him. Having said that, on my retiring party at uh, Indianapolis, he was the first to arrive, you know, <laughs> and he said, uh, oh, Nicky, great, great to see you. The first said, yes, yes, I come because I don't believe you're going to retire. I just <laughs> want to make sure you have here. <laughs> and uh, it was brilliant. And then when he finished his career, he wrote this book from hell and back. And it's one of the best reading racing books that I have read. And I was so sorry that having read that and then when I saw Nicky and I said, I wish I would have, you couldn't, I couldn't read the book before because you haven't written it before you were with us because I would understand a lot more how you tick and that maybe I would have been closer relation, uh, friendship than I ever did with him. Um, yes, it's, uh, it was a, it was, I wouldn't say difficult, it was, he had a very difficult time with McLaren because Prost was so much quicker than him and he really tried hard but he realized that. So he he tried to always beat Prost outside the car, in the car he knew he could never beat him. And, um, and I always felt that uh, that particular year, because of the way the championship counted, um, um, he won five races and Alain won seven. I think Alain should have been the champion. And that's how it happened. And, and if Alain would have finished second in uh, in Monaco, the full race, and he would have had six points, he would have been the champion. So anyway, it's it's, um, it's hard. But and, and that that last race was incredible. I think. Uh, Alain was first or second, and um, Nicky was 11, I think, if I don't remember, unless I'm very much mistaken, he was really... <laughs> he, was, he was about 11th, yeah. Uh, yes, and uh, he only needed to be second or to to to, whoop, to win the championship, you know, so Alain needed to be first, and Alain was first, and <laughs> then it, towards the end, you know, the cars were falling apart, and he was making room and um, getting better and uh, quicker and whatever. And then he got out to third. And then, uh, was it the Angelis or, no, Mansell in front. And I can't remember which of the two. Anyway, he he broke his car and he, and then he, he looked at the third second. And oh, no, I couldn't believe it, no way. Who was that? Was then next I tried to see who was the car that stopped there, and he said, "Oh, I couldn't see it before, and I couldn't believe I'm a second. I'm saying, I'm world champion." He said, "Oh, the car is starting to make noise. The brake pedal it was very long. It's all rubbish, you know. He was just <laughs> so uh, hesitant to be champion. He, he couldn't believe. He said, no, something's going to happen, and and." Uh, and then no, of course nothing happened. It was all his imagination. He won the race, and uh, 
it was world champion. Yeah, so an, an amazing, amazing. We didn't have a. It was in Portugal, so it was the last race of the year, and uh, I, I remember I, I booked everybody to get back to to England on the Tuesday because I knew on the Monday we were not in any condition and the party finished at nine o'clock in the morning it was unbelievable. Um, yes, good good memories. And so, I mean, we had to do a good party. I thought I could live a hundred years. No one <laughs> would make, again, 12 wins out of 15 races or out of 16 races. And four years later, yes. we had 15 <laughs> out of 16. Incredible. Well, what were the circumstances that led you to McLaren? I mean, how did you, how did you, your job with McLaren come about? Did Ron con- contact you? Did you contact Ron? Or was yeah, no, we were, we were friends, Ron and I. In my book, I said that for the first 10 years we were friends and the other 20 years he was my boss. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we used to, because he was uh, working at uh, Cooper's, and I don't remember where I was working at the time. And then we used to, in racing, even if you were different teams, they were much, much closer, the camaraderie between it, because all the teams, there were 10 people, or, so everybody know each other. I used to play squash. We, we run every weekend, we were not racing or something. We had played once in Maidenhead, and then he came, I was living in Maidenhead, and then he came home for the lunch, or we play in walking, and I used to come home with lunch with him, which is his original girlfriend, not with Lisa. Uh, so we, we were good friends, and then he started to get very successful. I always knew that he was going to be get places. He was so... Uh, first of all, he had this uh, ability to see how the future was coming. He had it on his mind, and he was very good in every in every respect. And um, anyway, he was successful with his Formula 2 team, and he, one year he got a lot of sponsorship and he said, uh, Ron, why don't we, uh, Joe, why don't you make another team? And I put some of your sponsorship to you to start with. And, and then, by then, I was with working with Shadow, with Elio De Angelis and Jan Lammers, I think. And we were not winning any races, but we had so much fun. And I was really enjoyed it, but I was my boss. You know, I used to, uh, I didn't have anybody, well, Don Nichols, but he come only once a year or whatever, and, and I would really enjoy it. And uh, I said, no, where do I want to do a, a Formula Two team and enjoying being in Formula One. And um, anyway, time went by, and um, then w- I was in the Theodore, and he by then he'd already took over McLaren in 1981, and he called, he asked, he offered me a job then, but. McLaren, you have uh, John Barnett, Tyler Alexander. Oh, it was so many top people up there. And I said, what am I going to do? I'd rather be a a big fish in a small pond than the other way around. And I didn't accept it. And then the next year came the turbo era. We had not a turbo engine, and we wouldn't have a chance of getting a turbo engine. I was thinking to go into the States where I had some offers. And then, uh, fortunately for me, wrong call again, you know, I said, uh, what about this year? Are you going to come to, look, we have the Porsche engines and we have a good, you know, so I went and have an interview with him and, and John Barnard and I was playing hard to get, but inside <laughs> me I said, yes, I want this job. <laughs> uh, and I got it. Uh, this is how, how I started. 
I had a question actually about Ron from Anthony Jenkins. Um, McLaren right now, uh, he says, are a shambles. Would this have happened under Ron Dennis? <sighs> no. I, I, mind you, Ron was there at the beginning of the the, mm, the, the decline. The, the decline. So uh, it's difficult to say. No, it wouldn't get to this point. Certainly not. Um, but so good Ron was at. Uh, yes, he he himself made mistakes, and it's for sure he wouldn't. It, this was not the way he wanted to end up, the emporium that he built up. But he would only know sadly why. I uh, for anybody else that was in Ron era, see what's happened to McLaren now. I tell you, I cry, and the races is horrible. Please, one. Yeah. I have a quick question about Ron from, from Girardo. Um, it wants to take you back to Indy 2001, uh, Mika Hackner's final win. Um, he said, the in your book, the bit where you explain how Ron made you think you were going up to the podium makes, made him feel sick for the sheer lack of respect. With the, lack, with the benefit of hindsight, how do you rate Ron now? Are you friends? Have you, have you mended the bridges of... It's funny, you know, like I said at the beginning, that <coughs> he was my friend for 10 years, and then my boss for the last 20. Um, yeah, I was very surprised at uh, what happened in, in Watkins Glen then. Um, but that's wrong, you know, he's always wanted, and, and Watkins Glen, no, in Indianapolis, Indianapolis, Indianapolis yeah. was a very special, uh, uh, I was retiring. All of the sponsors got together and run to make a superb party. So I was like, you know, the cat whistles at the time. Everybody wanted a piece of me. Everybody, and and Ron hated it. Ron hated it that uh, I was taking uh, the the light lime out of uh, the weekend, and uh, and I think that's why he said, no, no, you you should not go in the podium. But. Um, uh, Anyway, it was good to to finish my racing life with the first and second, no first and third, with Michael Schumacher in the middle. Yeah, yeah it was a great weekend. But yes, Ron is 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 Ron. It's like that. I mean, it's just like uh, he knew my wife, he knew my daughter so well. He used to love. <laughs> he used to love my my <coughs> my daughter. I was always. Uh, making jokes with when I take took her to the races, but that weekend kind of ignored them, like if they were not there. No, it it was so. I, I still cannot understand it, but uh, I was wrong. Yeah. I, I think it was at, I think it was at Silverstone in two thousand and one when um, Mika Hakkinen and David Coulthard presented you with a Harley Davidson, didn't they, as a as a forthcoming retirement gift? Yes. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, that, I mean, but. It, I think a, a gesture like that from two race. I mean, I don't imagine it does. Well, that kind of thing doesn't happen very often, does it? Certainly not in the. I still call, call that the modern era. I mean, mm. that was a. I mean, how did you? Did you have any clue that that was happening? Not I at remember. All. I remember standing at the photo shoot, and you looked very surprised. <laughs> not at all. That was in Hungary. That was my birthday. That was my sixty. I was in Hungary. Yeah, okay, so my yeah, sixty yeah. year birthday, and that was the year that I was mm. retiring. Mm. So they decide to. 
between David and Mika to to give me the bike, and I just wow, you know, I've now just remembered it because I couldn't believe it, you know. And I remember the I was in the working in the transport there, and the girls came, so they need you in the motorhome. So I went to the motorhome; it was empty. What did they need me here for? And so I went back to there, and then he came back again. No, 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 they need me. Yeah, I've been there, but it's nobody. <laughs> yeah, we stayed there a little bit. So I went back there, and then I was there. And from one door, David Coulter come, and uh, and Mika Hacking on the other side with a leather jacket, you know. Oh, you like leather jacket? Yeah, it's great. So I put it there, and as I put it on, I see Harley Davidson, and say, "Oh, great! All I need is a, <laughs> is a, <laughs> a bike. It's a bike." <laughs> no? And uh, and then I hear the Harley Davidson black shiny Harley coming in, and I, I and say, you like it? It's, oh, I love it. It's yours. Wow! Uh, even now, I can. <laughs> have you still got, have you still got it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we use it a lot. Not so much lately, and now I have other uh, classic cars and other things to do, and, and Ursula don't like it so much now. <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, we we did. We went to Portugal a couple of times. We we went to Morocco. We uh, all of Andalusia. Yeah, we really have a good use of it. But now you know, getting old, you got a problem. We had a couple of little not accidents, incidents, but you have an accident at our age and, you know, it's very difficult to recover. Like it happened to Dan Gurney. He had an accident on his alligator and, and that was the beginning of his downfall. Did, did you ride the bike back from Hungary or did they put it in the truck for you? No, no, they, they <laughs> put it in the truck. <laughs> yes. Now, we are running out of time, so we really need to touch on Senna and Prost because we've had, I think, lots of questions about unsurprisingly about that time so we've had some questions from s404 and 1500 quid about senna and prost and the engines being given to prost because i think i read somewhere that senna was a honda driver with mclaren chassis and prost was a mclaren driver with honda engines do you was there any truth yeah in that? no 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 it's true that 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 Ayrton was a Honda driver with a McLaren chassis and that um, proves the contrary but there was no truth whatsoever about the engines the engines were always uh, the same in fact it was at some stages it was the the number one mechanic on each car that pick up the engines were there and he pick up one so there was absolutely the same engines all the time it's just that that was one of the things Prost never could use the power, the power band of the engine, the way that uh, Alain, uh, sorry, Ayrton used to use it. It, it, it was superb. Ayrton always kept the engine, but always kept the revs up. And, and Alain tried to do it in a corner in, and he said, there's no way I can't, I can't do it. So he, he said, you know, those eight meters in front that it takes, he deserved it because I tried, I can't do it. But he's very good at, at keeping the rev up. And, and that was the only, well, that was a big difference between the two of them in a, in a, in a lap in qualifying. This is why Ayrton was such an unbeliever. How, any, how could anybody be a second quicker than Prost in a circuit that like um, uh, Monaco and Spa? where 
Alain always kind of made the difference between the other drivers, and, and yeah, it was amazing. Uh, having said that, the big, the big, the main difference between them is that if you give a line a car that is a 100% of his liking, he was unbeatable. But how often you get a car that is 100% to you like, very seldom. While uh, Ayrton could improvise and change his driving to suit the car and then manage to get quicker. Uh, Alain was always a better driver to uh, set up the car. He, uh, Ayrton tried so many things in practice to to get the car going and in the end he said no we'll forget it just put it same as a line and he knew if the car is same as a line he can beat it um but he was uh it was great to be mm, i mean I, I i put that in my book which i loved it it was the french the french grand prix uh on those days if you were quick in practice you get four sets of qualified um so he got four sets of qualified for the for the qualified one hour qualifier we had and there was no limiting in laps you can use it whatever do whatever you like and a line went up set up the pole position the um, preliminary pole position or whatever you call it and uh, he get off the car and he said what are you doing you're crazy we still have another three sets of of tires i forget it if he can do a lap quicker than this he deserved the pole <laughs> He quick puts his t-shirt and jeans, and he went in the pit lane watching the race. Ah, the more watching the practice, the more uh, Ayrton see him, the faster he tried to <laughs> go and the slower he got. And uh, and then we get to Portugal, where in Portugal uh, uh, Ayrton had a good car, and uh, he did the, the same to Alain. <laughs> so this this is the sort of thing, games that we have between them that we as a team loved it so much because they. I don't know whether if they, for sure they knew how much between them they push McLaren to the front. It, it was amazing. It was brilliant. Um, Bill in Sydney asked, when did Prost get his first clear idea just how fast Senna was? Do you think there was one moment where he thought? Yes. Um, it was in Belgium, qualified in Belgium. Uh, Ayrton used to get in such a trance when he qualified that he went to, uh, in, inside the transport uh, to change his clothes. But before he changed his clothes, he used to sit there and just uh, put his head down like that. Uh, and uh, and we just left him because we knew he was just kind of going back to normal after the qualifying because he did, uh, it's something I've never seen on any other sportsman to to try so hard to something that he really wanted. Anyway, and we were at the end, the other end of the transport with, with a line, and I was looking at the times, and a line was looking, but where in the world he's taking that much time? I can't believe it, of all places in here. And and I can see Ayrton, Ayrton can hear what we were talking, but he, and a line was this way, so he couldn't see Ayrton. And then Alain said, I just don't understand it, where he takes all that time. He must be effing quick. <laughs> and then I look at Ayrton. Ayrton turned around to me and he closed an eye. <laughs> he just, I, I think I, that was the moment that for Ayrton, finally, you know, when he got to McLaren, Alain was number one. So he was, he just wanted to beat Alain. He didn't care about Mansell, Rosberg, anybody, just Alain. And beating them for a second at, at Belgium, he then decided this is it. 
I am now no more. And I, so, and in the same thing, which one Prost said, yes, he is very, very quick. <laughs> uh, Anthony Jenkins actually asks if if he think Alan Prost is one of the greatest ever. I I think a line because the way sometimes I don't, I don't understand he doesn't figure as much as high up as he should and to me for sure he's I'll be biased because I worked with him for so long but uh, without a doubt is uh, it's a guy that was com- totally incapable of making mistakes and not because he was slow you know this but yes I think the history don't treat him as he deserved, but he's certainly one of the very top, uh, you can, 10 drivers. I probably put it even top of the top six drivers. Do you, do you think part of that is a consequence of Prost's driving style? Because he was very, very fast, but he was also very efficient, and he didn't look, whereas Senna, the sparks coming off the car, he's over curbs, he's sideways, he's fighting the wheel. It was a, it was a it had a much more aggressive driving style. Do you think that people did, don't appreciate just how good Alan was because he did it with 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 such economy of style? I think you can possibly put the nail on the head because uh, yes, I think that you you're very right. He didn't look. I mean, at the end of the race, you you take the gearbox apart and the gears of of a line could do another race. Yeah. The brakes of a line could. Do, I mean, the difference. Not so much with Ayrton, but say like when we have Keke Rosberg. Yes. The <laughs> difference, Keke Rosberg could not finish a race because he just finished the, the, the brakes. And Alain could have done two races with the same brakes. It, it's, it's amazing. It, it's so smooth. Um, it's what makes Alain so, so, so good. Uh, and yes, it was, a, of course, the difference for the public. They see it, you know, the other guy is better, but maybe because he's driving it sideways, he's losing time and, and it's not appreciated. But on, we used to tell him, when you do a quick one, let us know because we're going to miss <laughs> he it. He can't tell. Yeah, we can't <laughs> tell, really. You know? And it was a guy like, it's amazing qualifiers. If uh, um, Pique or Rosberg, they go... Uh, in a lap time, I know, 29.5. He got back in the car and he did 29.4. And I said, bloody hell, how could you do that? I don't know. <laughs> he could never <laughs> have, didn't have the answers. But it's true. He just, enough, you know. Like Fangio used to, always used to say, the secret of winning races is to win in at the slowest possible speed. For sure, you've got to conserve everything else. And, and uh, Alain was a specialist. One last question on um, Prost and Senna. This comes from Glenn Alcock. Um, he says, you managed to stay neutral in the Senna and Prost battles. Um, how difficult was that? And how did you manage to keep Senna's trust? Um, well, to, to, for, for me, it was easy. My job was to make uh, working with the drivers and the mechanics and the engineers and uh, I wasn't there at the time they were signing uh, the the contracts. Uh, I didn't never spoke about money with them, and uh, so it was easy for me to be a friend of two of them. And when the things got a bit sticky, I used to think of something funny that they stopped them thinking of that. Uh, just tried to change the conversation completely, and 
going another way. And yeah, it seems it seems to to work because um, both of them, I I believe they did trust me, and um, yeah, it was uh, as I said before, uh, non easy. You really have to think about it. Where how are you going to get into? Um, yeah, it was not easy, but it, but it was a super super stage of the of my life. I mean. I remember when they, uh, when he, when Prost went to Ferrari, and I said to Alain, uh, to Alain, to Ayrton, I said, "Look, you're going to see each other often in the podium, so you may as well finish your, you know, shake hands and be." You with that effing <laughs> <laughs> No way! No way! <laughs> um, but I keep working at it, and in the last race, they actually got together and. Um, it was uh, it was something missing because on the last uh, I think he, the last race of a line was in um, Adelaide, but in Japan they were going to exchange helmets. Um, for some reason I don't remember now it, it didn't happen and it, it was uh, it was sad. But uh, I was so happy that in. Adelaide, they get together and they embrace each other and so on. I mean, they were so good and they would have so much respect one another that I'm sure if it didn't happen what it happened in Imola, they would become friends for sure. But there you are. <laughs> then um, after Senna Prost came Senna Schumacher and um, Entropy, a commenter on the website, has... Um, Ask what your take on that rival on that rivalry was. Um, was it because Senna felt disrespected by Schumacher, or seeing a young upcoming driver as a threat? You think? Oh yes, for sure. Uh, <coughs> Ayrton knew he was going to be his next uh, stronger uh, rival, and um, I remember at uh, Magnicourt. I can't remember which year, but when. When Schumacher started to go in, they had a a crash. What I don't remember the reason, but obviously it, it was between them, and uh, Ayrton believed it was Michael's fault. So then the race was stopped. The rain or oh, something happened. It, the race was stopped, and it was a restart. At the restart. Ayrton said to me, "You watch Michael." So I, and he went out to talk to Michael before the restart. And you could see him. I don't know what they were talking, but uh, you could see he was pointing out and putting the finger at. And um, Michael was very serious. Listen, he didn't say anything, listen. And then uh, then he came back, said, good, he's now a little bit destabilized for the race, I think. <laughs> uh, and in fact, something happened and uh, he went off soon after the start. So yes, he knew that he was, uh, I've always, and I said to Michael that I was very uh, appreciate that uh, when he broke, broke one of the records of uh, maybe the number of races, yes, when he surpassed the number of race wins of uh, Ayrton. And uh, Michael said, no, this is not a record for nothing. To me, I don't, why, it's nothing. You know, everybody knows if Ayrton was a lot, he would have won a lot of the races that I have won now, so I wouldn't have 
this doesn't mean anything for me. I think that was good of him to 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 say that. Um, but yes, it is very true that for us, the fans in general, we lost a great battles that we would have with Michael and and, uh, and Ayrton. I think I read somewhere that Martin Brundle said Senna was more obsessed with Schumacher and Schumacher didn't really consider the relationship of rivalry, maybe. Do you agree with that? There was more Senna pushing the rivalry more than Schumacher. Yes. Yes, it, it, it's true to say because, you know, he was established and Michael was on the ladder. Um, yes. And then just to finish up, we have three hopefully quick fire questions. <laughs> Simon, you can answer some of these as well. <laughs> so Matt has asked, over one lap, uh, Hakkinen or Senna, who would you choose? Over one lap? One lap. Oh, Senna, Senna, yes. No, we don't go. Close, but... Yeah, it was <coughs> good. I mean... <laughs> When Mika was our test driver, and he was just couldn't wait when he was going to drive, and eventually we, we got rid of uh, Michael Andretti, and he got to Portugal his first race, and uh, of course he wanted so much to get to drive, and he got uh, Senna with his trousers down for sure. He just didn't expect it, and and I remember after after in the debriefing after uh, you couldn't take the smile out of Mika, <laughs> you know. And Senna, he was so mad. What the have you smiling for? You know, <laughs> what have you done? You know, and tomorrow you won't last me a lap. You know, he was, and uh, and the next day it, after the start, he passed him on the grass, and he just really made a point like you know you nobody <laughs> he used to love that to put his um, his other driver down so much like um, I remember testing in, uh, in Hungary uh, Jonathan Palmer was a test driver and then uh, Ayrton came to drive the other, the next day and when he come to the circuit we would still have half an hour and say, well, would you like to drive the car now? So maybe we, you need to change the gear ratios or something so we don't least lose time tomorrow. Yeah, sure, I do a lap. So he did a lap and it was one and a half seconds quicker than Jonathan <laughs> had done. Just one lap in, in two days. So Jonathan said, well, I guess if you don't need me tomorrow, I could get a flight tonight <laughs> back to London. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's always, for for him, I mean, the competition was, Senna was always being qualified, practice or tested Senna. So the competition was after Senna, and that's how he kind of, uh, he'd and love to do that, yeah. Bill in Sydney has another question. Um, if you were running a four-car team with Prost, Senna, Loud and Stewart in their prime, what order would they finish and why? Prost, Senna. Prost, Senna, Lauda and Stewart. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, presumably all the cars finish. Yeah, I think um, Ayrton would have won. Prost, Stewart, and Lauda. I think. Any reason? Or uh, I guess probably it's no, no, no reason. <laughs> To me, there was if, if I have to close the first 
five ever of history, I would say it was Fangio. He was good, and he was in, I respect so much the way he he did his life and his wins and so on. Clark, because uh, I just missed a little bit. No, I I got some of um, Clark's, but uh, I would like to be a little bit early to. It was unbelievable. And then we have Senna, Prost, and Stewart. And I'm so glad that I been, I work with the three of those yeah. five. Simon, you're top four? In that order? Oh, the, from the race? From the race. Uh, I think I'd probably go Senna first, dead heat for second between Prost and Stewart, and, and Lauda fourth, yeah. Okay. And then one final thing before we finish. Um, have you been impressed by Sergio Perez since he joined Force India? That's a question from Dan. Have I been? Have you been? Have you been impressed by Sergio Perez? Now, yes. Since yes. he joined Force India, yes, I think he's, he's he's very good. I mean, he he start. Unfortunately, he got in too young, and he did big mistakes. On his relation with McLaren was not good when they let they go out of McLaren. Um, I didn't think he was going to get a drive because then, okay, the car wasn't good at that time, but it's still McLaren was McLaren. So you have a, you drive for a top team like McLaren and they let you go. Then the other top teams, well, why? Like, you know, it's a bad thing on your curriculum. He may wouldn't even have another uh, opportunity having said that because of the lack of drivers whatever he got another opportunity with Force India Martin Whitmarsh was very good helping him to, to do that and uh, it was uh, good for him that the car was good and he was able to do some good racing and since then he's get better and better not solo not only as a as a driver but as a person I think he as I say, he got in the sport too soon, too young. He made big mistakes of, of being young. And uh, that um, uh, he's regrettable now, but uh, he still was able to rebuild, reinvented himself and carry on with his career. And I think, unfortunately, there are no top drives anymore. Very difficult to get a drive on the top team. but. What he's with what he's got is 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 good. Made no mistakes. He's good with the tires. He's good with the car. Gets the car to the end, and he's been in the points very regularly. So it's it's it's, it's good, and I'm, I'm I hope he continue because if, if we don't have a Mexican driver, we probably won't have a Mexican Grand Prix, and and you know for. Uh, it's it's very important for a for a country to to be involved. Sure, I think we've just about covered everything in the time. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, Joe. A pleasure. Um, sure it's always nice. To I, I think we should get. I think we should get you back for <laughs> chapter two. Yeah. <laughs> I've got more questions, but yeah. for another time. But before we go, um, I have been asked to point out that we have our first ever track day come up on October the fifth at Thruxton. Um, and if you want to know more about that, just go to our website, uh, which is mosportmagazine.com. Um, so if you want to get on track at Thruxton, some of us will be there um, knocking around. Um, so I hope to see you then. Joe, thanks again. And we'll Welcome. be back soon. Thanks, Simon, with our next guest. Thanks a lot.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.